truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Now that's a mouthful, but I want to talk to you this morning on these two words, earnest money, earnest money. So this word earnest is actually mentioned uh, numerous other times in the scripture, but when you boil it down to the word that it references from the Greek, that word is only mentioned three times. So earnest is translated from the Greek in various different types of words from the Greek, and in the English, the best meaning we have is earnest or earnestly. Sometimes it's spelled a little different, at least in the King James Version. But this word from the Greek just means a pledge that is as part of the purchase of purchase money or property given in advance of security. If you've ever bought a house, you know what earnest money is. If you want to buy a house, you better know what earnest money is. Because that is how you get your loan. That is how you get the house. Unless you get like an FHA loan or some loan that doesn't require earnest money. But, but it is mentioned two other times uh, in the New Testament from 2 Corinthians 1. Who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. And then from 2 Corinthians 5, Paul again said this. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God who hath also given unto us the earnest of his spirit. So in each case where Paul talked about from this Greek word earnest, it's speaking of the fact that the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit when it's given to us is our earnest money. In other words, it's the down payment of what we are going to one day receive when we get to heaven. The power, the glory, the joy, the emotion that we feel on this side or in this physical body is only a momentary pleasure as compared to what we're going to be feeling when we get to heaven. It's going to be on a much larger scale. And, and the Bible says in one place that the righteous will even outshine the stars. And whenever you really reference that, it means that our glory, I believe, will even surpass that of the angels themselves. That's the kind of glory we're going to have. Let me digress for just a moment. I've been playing the guitar since, you know, I guess uh, July of 2019. I, I do not claim to be a good guitarist. I just find ways to embarrass myself a little bit less now than I did when I first started to play. And, uh, you know, I told my wife one time I hit a wrong note in the middle of service. I don't know if anybody heard or not, but it's, to me it sounded like somebody blew their nose on the microphone. I was like, oh, dear God. <clears throat> but, you know, I do the best I can. But so whenever I first started to play, I, I went as far as I can. You know, you know, based on basically YouTube and whatever you can learn online, which is not very far. You can learn a bunch of, a bunch of songs online, but you can't really learn guitar online. Because what they'll say is they'll say, put your finger here and pluck this note. But you don't know why you're plucking that note or why it sounds good or what the theory behind it is. So I looked for a teacher. I found one, long story short, his name is Jay Daly. Jay's been teaching me for what's been about a year, year and a half now, I guess. I cannot tell you how good of a guitarist Jay is. He is a real pro. He's made a living out of playing the guitar his whole life. He's never done anything else but playing the guitar, and he's made a living out of it. It takes 10,000 hours of solid, devoted practice to, to learn to master an instrument. Okay, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of time. If you were to practice four or five hours a day, 
every day, 365 days a year, it would take you at least five years to master an instrument, practicing that much. Jay has spent over 12,000 hours just in live gigs. And that's not counting since he's been, I think he started playing when he's 13 years old. He's in his late 60s now. He's played for, for a lot of big-name groups. He's toured a lot of different places. But as he was, uh, you know, telling me, you know, we were, we were, we were talking about worship guitar and, and specifically worship music and how it differs in sound from, from other genres, as it should sound, because it's, it's a different type of music. But he said, he said something that, that really shocked me. He said, you know, modern worship music gets its sound from, from the group U2. And there is, uh, there is a guitarist for the U2 who calls him himself The Edge. And, and, and whenever you listen to how he plays and the tone of the guitar that he achieves, that's what many modern worship guitarists are seeking to sound like. Even now, and that was you know, and that was in the early '80s. So, so this band U2 is an Irish rock band. It's been around since the '80s. They are still touring. They are after the Beatles, and and uh, so there's there's the Beatles, and then there's one other band that's that's a really big band. Um, but after them, yeah, sorry, yeah, it was the Rolling Stones for those that were here last night. So there's the Beatles, there's the Rolling Stones, and after them, as far as the biggest band that's grossed the most. U2 is the third largest band, rock band, in the history of rock and roll music. So they're still touring. They call themselves the greatest Christian rock band that never was. Meaning that they've never really came out officially as a rock band. And they've never really came out officially as a Christian band either. They just simply play their music. But they say they sing to a higher power. And so, as I'm uh, talking to Jay, he says, you know, he's, he's talking about this, this group, you two, and he says, you know, two of those group members are professing Christians. And then he kind of smirked and laughed, and he said, but who gets to decide that? Why does it, what does it even matter? Who gets to decide that? Prince Charles was in Ireland uh, several years ago. A reporter asked him if he knew about the band U2. Prince Charles said, of course, and he realized the reporter probably didn't believe him. So he added, I hope they found what they were looking for. That's a song you too, in case you didn't know what that was. See, y'all are so spiritual, you don't know all these worldly songs. But back to his question, what difference does it make anyway? I mean, from a worldly perspective, if Christians generally live good lives because they confess Jesus, but so do many Muslims. Matter of fact, now you may not believe that, but that's absolutely the truth. There's a lot of good, wholesome Muslims in this world that obey all or more of the Ten Commandments. I can take you to a doctor right now who is a practicing Muslim. As far as I know, she's not a believing Christian unless she's converted recently. But, but she is a practicing Muslim. She is the kindest and the sweetest and the nicest little doctor you've ever met in your life. I can take her... And I could plant her in almost any evangelical church in our country. And without the obvious you know, signal of her saying, I don't follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, without her saying it, most people would probably not ever know the difference based upon how she lives her life. There's a lot of Buddhists that live pretty good lives. And a lot of different other forms of religions, people that follow their religion, but, but in principle, they follow the Ten Commandments, or most of them at least, and they do their best to live good lives. But what difference does it make? Anyway, if 
you know, what difference does professing Christianity make? How are they different? It's a fair and it's a thought-provoking question. And I always say this, that if God had only gave us the forgiveness of sins through repentance and baptism, and that is as far as it ever went, then from the world's perspective, there would absolutely be no difference at all. Because now we know that what repentance does, and we know what water baptism does, that it washes away sins. It, you know, it puts us uh, you know, into the kingdom of God. We know that that's what repentance and water baptism does. But from the world's perspective, you know, there's no great miracle there. Anybody can go down in the water and have a few words confessed over them. Anybody can come to the altar and repent. And from their perspective, well, you're just changing your mind. You're just going to live a different life. People do that in Alcoholic Anonymous or Alcoholics, Alcoholic Anonymous every day. You know, all the time people go for years and years and they live sober just based on the principles of AA. So how are you different? But what if God, in his infinite wisdom, because I've heard that God is pretty smart. What if God had given us supernatural proof so that when somebody believes and, and repents of their sins and is water baptized, that God confers upon them something supernatural that only God could do, that, that literally there would be a miracle happen at that moment that the world would recognize and see, and then they would know that something is different because that would be proof of his residence inside of us. And it would be an experience that only Christians could have. And that experience was literally something otherworldly. And that would defy natural or any human explanation. Then that, we could say, would be the difference. And let me take you to an upper room in Acts chapter 2 where that is exactly how God started this whole thing. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like as if fire and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. This did not come from earth. It came from heaven. And it is still coming from heaven today. Because heaven has a different currency than earth has. You know, we look at how, uh, you know, other, other religions look at Christianity. And many of them, you know, look at it in the same way that a lot of Christians do. It, you, know, it, you know, is that is basically, if I die right now, then if my good works outweigh my bad works, then I go to heaven. If I'm, if I'm more good than bad, or if I'm more bad than good, then I go to the bad place. If I'm more good than bad, then I go to the good place. And that's basically a lot of people's theology in America. Most of Americans consider themselves evangelicals. That is like over 70% of America considers themselves Christians on some level. And yet many of them don't go to church. They live however they want to. Um, and, and they just kind of do their own thing. And so from an earthly perspective, we often look at works as, as the currency of heaven. But the currency of heaven is not works, it is faith. And everything that we receive from God comes by and through faith. Our faith. And you know what? It only takes a penny's worth of faith to get everything in the store. 
You may say, well, I don't have enough faith. You know what? If all you've got is a little bit of faith, Jesus said a mustard seed of faith will get you, will allow you to move great mountains and to do great things. So you may have come here today and you say, well, I don't have faith for the Holy Ghost or I don't have faith for healing. All you have to do is have a little bit of faith. Like that man that said, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And everything in the store is yours. By faith. Amen. First Peter said this, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching water, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you. With the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. The Old Testament prophets had something, you know, that we, or they wanted something that we have today. Matter of fact, whenever you read through the Psalms, and, and especially like Proverbs and other places, you know, you'll read how, you know, David was thankful for what God had given him. But there was still a hunger for him, in him for something more. Like whatever he said, you know, in one place he said, you know, I'm envying the birds that nest in the house of God. Because, because they can stay there continually. Amen. And, 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 and what David was really saying was not that, you know, I can't go into the tabernacle anytime I wanted to because he could. But what he was saying was I want to continually abide in God's presence. They were in it and then they were out of it. They were in it whenever they were in the tabernacle, whenever they're making their sacrifices, but then they went quickly out of it. God was around them, but he was not in them. He did not abide continually inside of them. But you can find, you know, evidence of what God was getting ready to do in the New Testament from the Old Testament. God gave them signs like God was around them. You can find that in the glory cloud that filled uh, the tabernacle of Moses that rested there above the mercy seat. You can find evidence of the pillar of fire uh, by night, and the pillar of cloud by day that followed the Israelites in the wilderness. You can find evidence in many places whenever Israel would fight their battles. Second Samuel 5.24, you know, the Lord told King David, and, and let it be, when you hear the sound of it going in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you will, you will bestir thyself, or stir yourself up. For then shall the Lord go out before you to smite the host of the Philistines. Amen. David told David, God told David, I'm going to go before you, and be around you in this battle. But you've got to wait for me because I'm going to, I'm going to go before you. My, I, my angels are going to go before you and you'll hear them wrestling in the mulberry trees above you. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? God said, I'm going to send my army. You're going to physically hear it. And when you physically hear my army go before you, then you just follow me and watch me do all the work. Amen. And you can find evidence as, as how uh, whenever Elijah was surrounded by the armies, how God allowed him to see the armies of heaven and, and how the armies of heaven were greater. And he said, they that be for us are more than they that be against us. You can find how God continually fought Israel's battle over and over and over again. At times, they did not even have to raise a sword. In one place, they didn't have to do anything. They just got up in the morning and the host of the enemy was laying dead on the ground. But God promised them, as much as I am doing for you right now, there is still more that I have for you. 
You can find evidence of how Jeremiah, he would long for the presence of God. He would long to be in the presence of God. And the presence of God would often rest upon them and would momentarily be in them, but it never continually abided with them until we get to the New Testament. And Paul said in Colossians, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God promised to be a God that would continually abide inside of us. That is a God who would fight our battles. A God to give us peace. A God to provide for us continually and be a father unto us that would never leave us or forsake us. And that, my friend, is the Holy Ghost experience. For you see, our entrance into heaven requires proof of purchase. Now, we know that he purchased salvation on Calvary. There's nothing we can do to, to add to any of that. But he purchased our right to enter into his presence, as we've already been in this presence this morning. And not just to enter into it, but to allow him to enter into us. Why would you stay outside of God's presence when there's a continual abiding presence that wants to reside and rest on you? Day by day, not just a one-time experience, but continually. Every morning you can get up. You can renew that experience in God. You can pray. You can feel that presence of God again. And he'll be with you all day long. That's the Holy Ghost experience. But whenever we get to heaven, what we feel over there is what we're already feeling over here. It's like kindred spirits. You ever met somebody and it's like instantly there's like a kindred spirit there. It's like, you know, you just click. That's kind of what it's like. When we get to heaven, don't be surprised. You know, I don't know what there is in heaven. Maybe there really is streets of gold and walls of jasper and gates of pearl and mansions. If you believe all that, you know, I, I hope you're right. But you know what? All of that will be nothing without the presence of God. Somebody wrote a song, you know, it's Jesus that, that is going to be what makes it heaven for me. Amen. It's the presence of God. But what we're feeling over there is what we're already feeling here, but on a much smaller scale. It's, it only bears witness with our spirit. That's why the presence of God is here. What we're feeling here is what we're going to feel over there. Look at our text carefully. Ephesians 1, he said, In whom you trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then he said this, which is the earnest of our inheritance. What I experience now in the Holy Ghost, what I feel, that is the glory residing in my soul, is a very small down payment to what I'm going to experience in heaven. And that is why you need the Holy Ghost, because it is your earnest money to make you, to make your entrance into that city of God. As a matter of fact, in one place in the book of Hebrews, he said, your names are already written there. You're already citizens of that new Jerusalem. You are already a citizen. Now, we're citizens of America, and, and, or whatever country people might be coming from, you are a citizen of that country, but you are also a citizen of a new city of God, of a new Jerusalem. Praise God, because I have been baptized into that body. I have been filled with His Spirit. And it's not just for me. It's not just for those that have lived a good life. It's for anybody, whosoever will, let Him come. There's a glow around those who have the Holy Ghost and walk in it daily. 
You've seen it before. I've literally seen people go down in waters, in, in the waters of baptism in Jesus' name. One particular lady that I'm thinking of right now, she came to me years ago, and she said she had thoughts of suicide, and she was one of those, you know, she called herself a, a Catholic hostel. And I had been teaching her Bible studies, and I told her, I said, you know, Tracy, you need to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I just said it right then. We've been talking about it in Bible study. That next Wednesday night, she got baptized in Jesus' name. And, and when she came up out of the water, there was a physical glow about her that was undeniable. It was an undeniable experience. She had already got, had to receive the Holy Ghost somewhere else, uh, if, if, I, if I remember the story right. But God just put his name on her in addition to that. If I take a, a $60 guitar... You know, if I go and I buy a $60 guitar from Walmart, an acoustic guitar, it's not going to be worth very much. It's not going to sound very good either. But if I take that $60 guitar, and in 1963, if I had the four members of the Beatles sign it, you know how much that guitar would be worth? About $250,000 at least, maybe more. The guitar that Willie Nelson plays, uh, he's got a name for it, and it, it's... It's got an extra hole in the guitar where he's picked it so much. And the guitar doesn't even sound good. But when he passes away, it's estimated that that little probably $100 guitar would be worth about $20 million. Because it has his name on it. And let me tell you, God can take something worthless that, other, that the world may pass by. And stamp his name on it and put his spirit inside of it. And suddenly it is priceless. That's the power of salvation. I've got something more than the four names of the Beatles. I've got something better than Willie Nelson's uh, DNA on my amen. I mean, I, I've got the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. i got a spirit inside of me. I am not a pauper. I am a son of the living God. It doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or if you've been addicted to drugs your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to pornography or have any other addictions. God is able to set you free. God is able to make you valuable in the kingdom of God and turn your life around and make you a testimony of his goodness. That's the power of God. And that's the power of the Holy Ghost. It is your earnest money. It's proof that the Holy Ghost resides inside of us. Jesus said in another place like this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in the field, the which when a man has found, he hides. And for the joy thereof goes and sows all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let me tell you this. You have to sell your field. To get this earnest money. Because a lot of people want to come to God on their own terms. They want to come to God and they want all the joy and all the wonderful things and all the wonderful experiences. But they don't want to change their life. And let me tell you, selling your field means I can't dress certain ways. I can't go to certain places. I can't listen and watch certain things. It means that I've got I've to live a straight line. I've got to walk a narrow road. I've got to walk a plumb line. But you know what? You know, if you just focus on the field and you don't realize that it's not just the dirty, musty field that you've got to buy, but it's that pearl of great price that I'm looking for. Amen. I, you know what? God put me in a field about 39 years ago when he filled me with the Holy Ghost. It was in a 
church about the size of this platform. Amen. 39 years ago, amen, it was just an old dirty field. It was a church that most people would have passed by, and most of that city did pass by. But thank God I lifted my hands, and God filled me with the Holy Ghost. And in that dirty field, I found a pearl of great price. I'm still finding it. It's a pearl of great price. Whenever you look at this and what it means from the Greek when Jesus said pearl of great price, it literally means that that pearl of great price was worth more than all of the gold and the silver in the world. And that's why the man rejoiced greatly. I don't know how rich this man was. He had to have some kind of money in order to, you know, in order to, to buy that field. We know the field was expensive because he sold all that he had to buy that field. But what he sold was, uh, was small in comparison to what he gained. Jesus said, no matter what you give up, you're not going to give up houses and lands and brothers and sisters and mothers for my sake, but you're, you're going to find so much more in the kingdom of God. The devil wants you to, you know, to keep thinking about all the things that you're going to give up. I'm going to have to give up my Saturday night party nights. I'm going to have to give up my alcohol and all this and that. Let me tell you, there is so much more than what you're gaining, amen, than what, you're, amen, than what God has for you. So much more, so much greater. It is so much better. But many have tried to find the pearl of great price without buying the field because they want it on their terms. Buying the field would cost you everything, but you'll gain so much more. Money can buy happiness, but it cannot buy joy. Money can buy happiness. If you won the lottery, you'd be happy. If you paid your tithes, the pastor would be happy too. <laughs> we don't need to, we can do whatever we want. We can build, a building is Big as we want to. <laughs> Big as the Empire State Building with that. But there's a lot of miserable people. Happiness is dependent on the circumstances and doesn't last. If you, if you go out and you buy a new car, there's that new car happiness. You want to post a picture, you post it on Facebook. Look at my new car, look at this. And you're inside of it or it's all polished up. But, you know, but let a couple months go by. And, and you say, I'm not going to eat in it. I'm not going to drink in it. <laughs> a couple months goes by. And there's a McDonald's cup on the floor. <laughs> French fries stuck in that. What's that spot between the seats? And you know, you never, never land. <laughs> what goes there is never going to be retrieved again. <laughs> and it's, you're not happy about it anymore. Because it's not new anymore. And with anything in life, no matter what, with a new house, everything, you know, even, even you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but even a marriage, uh, that newness of the marriage wears off eventually, and you're going to settle into just having a relationship. Every form of happiness wears off. But there is a joy that surpasses all of that. And it is not available in a lottery ticket. It is available only in what I am preaching about today. Money can buy a spouse. If you got enough money, uh, you, can, you, you can probably get a good spouse that just wants to marry for the money. But it cannot buy a partner and a true love. Money can buy protection and physical security. But it cannot buy real security. Money can buy years of counseling. But it cannot buy healing. Because what you're seeking for isn't found in the world. It's only found in the Holy Ghost. Look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, let no man glory in men for all things are yours. 
When was the last time you really believed that verse? You may not have any money in the bank, but Paul said, all things are yours. You may not, you know, have, have a job right now, but Paul said, all things are yours. In other words, when I needed healing, I lifted my hands and God gave me healing for my body. And either heal me or he said, I'm going to heal you, just be patient and wait. When I needed uh, forgiveness, I lifted my hands and asked God and he gave it to me. When I needed comfort in my lowest, darkest times of my life, I lifted my hands and I found the comforter that sticks closer than a brother. Amen. When I needed deliverance, I went to an altar and God gave me deliverance. When I needed the Holy Ghost, he gave me the Holy Ghost. Are you getting what I'm preaching about today? All things are yours. And when I needed money, he pulled it out of a fish's mouth. When I needed a job, it came out of nowhere. Whatever I need, all things are yours. All you have to have is a little bit of faith. A little bit of faith. A penny's worth of faith. It's not hard. If you are a child of God, you are rich. Everybody say, I'm rich in the things that matter. How can you explain it when suddenly 120 began to all at once, speak in a language they'd never spoken in before. There's literally no good human, logical, reasonable explanation for the Holy Ghost experience. There's no way you can explain it. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I told this story last night. Years ago, uh, late 80s, early 90s, there were these group of scientists and medical doctors that came together and decided that they wanted to study the Holy Ghost experience. And people speaking in tongues, they didn't call it the Holy Ghost story. They said, we're going to study speaking in tongues. And so they got five or ten tongue talkers, and they said, okay, we want you to pray until you talk in tongues. And we're going to record, we're going to hook you up to this brain machine thingy, and we're going to record what happens to your brain. And, uh, and, and so they did that. And what they came up with is there's this little thing in your brain called the medulla obligata. I have no idea what the medulla obligata is. I didn't even know I had a medulla obligata. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a Greek goddess or something, medulla obligata. But apparently you have a medulla obligata. I may not even be saying the name right. I don't know. Uh, we, we've, got, we've got nurses in this here right now that are sick of this. Oh, dear God. Help me. <laughs> I think you need your medulla obligata. I'm, I'm pretty, I don't think you want it to, to go away. <laughs> but what they came up with was that these tongue talkers were short-circuiting their medulla obligata. What a bunch of nonsense. You mean to tell me that the hundreds of millions of people that are alive today that have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, all of them have short-circuited their medulla obligata. Let me tell you, these are not drunken as you suppose. These are not short-circuiting their medulla obligata, as you suppose. They tried to explain it away back then, and they're still trying to explain it away now. But you cannot explain the Holy Ghost experience because it comes from God. Does not come from men. There's no logical explanation for it. It's a miracle when somebody begins to speak in other tongues that they've never known or have never heard before or have never understood before. But you know what? There is a witness there in the spirit when they get it. We don't have tongue-talking classes in this church. We will never have tongue-talking classes in the church. 
Here's your tongue-talking class. Repent of your sins, lift your hands, and say, Jesus, I love you, and you'll get the Holy Ghost. That, now, there's your tongue-talking class. That's the only class you ever need to get. Nobody teaches you how to say, blah, 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 blah. You know, years ago, they would say, you know, years ago, there was a movement that, that would teach people to say, say, uh, who stole a Honda? Now say, Kandabubushai. Or, who stole a Honda? Who stole a Honda? If you say that fast enough, you're going to start. <laughs> that ain't the Holy Ghost. That's nonsense. The real Holy Ghost comes by faith. You might cry when you get it. You might shout when you get it. You might not, you know, you might, there might not be any physical manifestation, but you're going to talk in tongues when you get it. I've seen people that are, you know, you know, I've seen people that are stout and would never lift their hands, but when, when the Holy Ghost gets a hold of them, it makes them like a wild man or a wild woman. They shout because there is something that this human spirit cannot contain. It is so powerful. It is so real. Don't let anybody talk you out of this. Don't let people tell you that it was just for the first century and then it ceased. It's still being poured out today. It's real. It's alive. Now you can deny it if you want, but at the end of the day, they're all excuses because you cannot deny my experience. Somebody said a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. People can argue all they want. They can try to, you know, bring you all this. This means that means in the Greek, and, you know, it's not for us today. And Paul, you know, Paul said in Corinthians that everything's going to cease and all this stuff. You know, they can have all these art. They're cessationists is what they call themselves. See, people that believe that all the gifts ceased after the first century. When the apostles died up, it all just stopped. There are famous radio preachers that are going to pick your pocket and lie to you and tell you that the Holy Ghost is not for you today. I'm going to tell you that there is so much more that God has for you than to lift your hands and say some meaningless prayer. And I'm not... You you know, I'm not denouncing anybody's experience. I'm just telling you, there is something so much more real and so much more dynamic and so much more powerful than that. It did not stop. It is still alive and real today. It's real. It's earnest money. The Holy Ghost experience is also a sign that both condemns and convicts the world. You know, you can, have you ever, you know, been like coming to a church and you, you don't really feel like worshiping God? Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're not feeling well. Maybe you've had a really rough day and you've got a million things on your mind. But when the presence of God begins to move, you get hungry for it. That's what I'm talking about. The same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. When the Spirit of God moves, one person can get hard. And harden their heart. And another person melts like ice and yields to the moving of the Spirit. So the Holy Ghost both convicts and it condemns. 1 Corinthians 14.22, Paul said this. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Now, tongues are a sign that God is real. When they spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost, the onlookers in Jerusalem heard every man speak in his own language and said, how is this happening? Because we know that they cannot speak our language. Tongues were a sign. The world will be condemned one day in part because they had access to a real supernatural experience and they did not receive it or desire it, at least some of them. But I'm thankful today that there will be many, many more, thousands of more, I believe millions of more who will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We have not seen the last person in liberty receive the Holy Ghost. 
We have not even come close. There's so much more that God wants to do. It's going to absolutely blow your mind. We are on a right track, a right road. God is going to do something far beyond our imagination. It is going to reach to the four corners of the earth. It's going to be so big and so dynamic and so powerful. It is going to be an absolute sovereign work of the Spirit. Amen. I mean, repentance comes from us. It's something we do. Baptism is an act of faith, like similar to repentance. It's something that we do. Both are something that we do. But the Holy Ghost is given from heaven. You know, you're not commanded anywhere in the scripture, you know, to receive the Holy Ghost. There is one command where Paul said, be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. But mostly it's a promise. You have it. It's a promise. So even if you don't believe it's necessary, why would you not want a free gift from God? It's free. It's yours. In other words, it's not made up. We don't teach people. It comes from God. On the day of Pentecost, it was just another day until the Spirit fell and the unbelievers saw the sign from heaven and began to question what it was because the Holy Ghost stirs up that hunger in your hearts for the living water. And one of the last things I'm going to tell is 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. Paul said this, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Jews, Gentiles, bond, free, we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. Let me tell you this, going to church and joining a church does not put you into the body of Christ. It might put you into this group or this body, but it does not put you into the body, the body of Christ. There is only one experience that you can ever have where God stamps his stamp of approval and says, okay, that's, now you're in the body of Christ, and it's this Holy Ghost experience. And it's because what's happening up there is already happening in here. It's heaven in your soul. The best way I can say it, it's heaven in your soul. It's a little bit of heaven in your soul. The Holy Ghost is what will one day quicken your mortal body and allow your body to get up out of the grave. And I, 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 I say that from Romans 8 and 11. Where Paul said, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. In other words, the Holy Ghost is what gives you power over death and the grave. How do I know that one day this body's going to get up out of that grave because I've got the spirit of God that resurrected Jesus from the grave inside of me? Amen. And it's that same spirit that, you know, that is inside of, of my spirit right now. It's that same spirit that one day when the rapture happens and Gabriel toots his horn, you know, the, the dead in Christ are going to get up out of that grave because I've got my earnest money. I've got heaven already in my soul. I've got the spirit, amen, that's already in heaven, that's already up there. I've got it right here. It's bearing witness. And lastly, you are poor unless you have this Holy Ghost experience. Why? Because all you have is what the world has to offer, and that's a whole lot of fool's gold. But there's an experience today you can have. From, from Luke chapter 11 and verse 9, Jesus said this, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. If you then, being evil... Know how to good give gifts unto your children. How much more is your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ask, seek, and knock. We often appertain that to many things. 
If you want a miracle, ask, seek, and knock for it. If you, want to, if you need money, you know, to pay a bill, ask, seek, and knock for it. But that, all that's true, but that's not what Jesus had in mind when he said that. He expressly had in mind the baptism of the Holy Spirit when he said that. If you then, being evil, know how to good give gifts, how much more shall your Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Ask, seek, and the kingdom of God will be open unto you. And lastly, as we stand, one of the last things that Jesus told his disciples was found in the book of Luke chapter 24. And, you know, he, he basically said, I'm going to lead you so far, but I want you to go the rest of the way. And he said, don't, don't stay here in Bethany, but go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And then the Bible says in, I think it's verse 50 of Luke 24, and he led them out as far as Bethany. Now, what you may not know is Bethany is only about two miles from Jerusalem. That's in one place it calls it a Sabbath day's journey. That's as far as you were like legally able to travel in those days, considering it was the Sabbath. <clears throat> I don't know, two miles would probably take me 20, 30 minutes to walk. It's not very far. Maybe they were in better shape back then. They could walk it a lot faster since they walked everywhere. They didn't have cars. It wasn't very far, but he led them as far out as Bethany. Bethany lies at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And it's where Jesus gave his sermon on the mount. And you know what? I, I can't help but think that there's a lot of people that are living in Bethany this morning. Bethany symbolizes to me where Jesus gave his sermon on the mount. And they're obeying, you know, all the teachings of Jesus, you know, as far as as many as they can. They're good Christians. They go to church Sundays. They may even pay their tithes. They may be good people. They've, they've done everything the preachers told them to do. They've repented. They may have been baptized into the Trinity, but they're living in Bethany. But here's the thing. Jesus led them into Bethany, but he, he didn't command them to stay in Bethany. Nobody can ever tell you that God did not lead you to that place of repentance where you're at right now, because that is your experience. Jesus led you there. But this morning, he's telling you, don't wait in Bethany, because Holy Ghost didn't fall in Bethany. It fell in Jerusalem. And that's why he said, don't wait in Bethany, but go on into Jerusalem because it's there in just about 10 more days that you're going to hear that sound from heaven and you're going to feel a wind that's going to come blowing through that place. And when that happens, you're going to lift your hands and you're going to know why I told you to get out of Bethany. If they had stayed in Bethany, they'd never have become the powerful move that shook Rome from center to circumference and that eventually became uh, that wonderful dynamic church that we know today as the first century church if they had stayed in Bethany. If they had stayed in Bethany, they may have been called the first church of Bethany, but it would have fizzled out after just a few short years, especially considering the persecution that was getting ready to happen in Jerusalem, not just a few days or a few years later. But I'm telling you right now, there is a dynamic Holy Ghost experience that God earnestly desires to give you. If you will ask, if you will seek, if you will knock, and if you will say, I've been living in Bethany long 
long enough. I've been living with this measly experience long enough, but I know this morning God has something more for me. I know God has something great and powerful for me, and this morning is my day, and I'm going to get it today because God has it for me. Lift your hands right now and just begin to call in the name of the Lord. Come on, church, let your voices out right now. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, the Holy Ghost can fall on you right now. Some of you already feel tears coming down your cheeks. Come on, let the Holy Ghost move on you right now. Amen. Would you get out of your pews right now? Would you come to the altars? If you need something from God, if you need a renewing, if you need a rebaptism, if you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost today, God is able to fill you. Hallelujah.